Well, I just want to say, Will, I was totally flattered when I got your follow on Twitter. <laughs> well, I'm very flattered. Wow, the Star Trek communist. <laughs> was that follow number 69 for you? Because I did notice that was uh, there. <laughs> yeah, and I just want to say, everybody on Twitter, 69 followers is a great meme. I've got the screenshot, but I could get another follower or two. You don't have to hold back just because it's 69 right now. Oh, I'm sorry. That is uh, the Twitter's too committed to the bit. That's, that's our. Yeah, it's been like a week. That's our whole problem is that we are too committed to the bit. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to Gay Space Communism, your favorite Star Trek leftist debacle podcast, and the only one that has an underlying carrier wave that begins to assimilate your brain with Borg components. Hi, welcome to our collective. My name is Paul Byron. I'm Corey Archibald. I'm Amy Hassel. Oh, Corey, you seem to have brought someone with you. They're in a little jar. That's weird. I did. I did. We are so fortunate to have our, our special guest today is Will, the Star Trek communist. I'm so thrilled to have Will here because we're both members of Star Trek Shitposting, which is basically the only good reason left to be on Facebook. The fantastic community. If you're a Star Trek fan and you and you still use Facebook for some weird reason, you need to be a part of that group because you're, you're missing out if you're not. But Will posted an article in that group a little over a month ago about how the Star Star Trek communist hope Star Trek can inspire a real revolution. And as soon as I saw that article, I was like, we got to get this guy on the pod. So we've connected and we're so excited to have him here with us. Will, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's my pleasure. I mean, uh, with the title of your podcast, it almost seemed too good to be true. I couldn't resist. So uh, it's, it's, it's perfect. So thank you for having me. Too good to be true is actually what a lot of reviewers are saying. <laughs> <laughs> that means our marketing is working. Oh, so well, you want you we've got a couple of episodes out in the world and you've probably gotten kind of a grip on how this goes. And we start always as usual because it's a dumb TV show podcast talking about dumb TV shows. What have you been watching lately? What's what what's what you've been chewing through Trek? What's your what's your uh, soup du jour of space nonsense or well, I don't know, making what, uh, what media are you getting into? What do you what's in what are you doing lately? So obviously I watch, I love rewatching things. So, I mean, it may seem too pat of an answer, but actually I've watched a lot of Star Trek yet again. I actually just recently got the Lower Decks Blu-ray set. It was just released not too long ago. And I'm watching it again for like the 20th time because they're very short episodes to watch it through. I'm watching all the special features, watching the interviews with the, the voice cast and Mike McMahon. I love Lower Decks. I think it's it's uh, one of the best new iterations that have come out. Uh, although I love all the iterations that start to come out, Discovery, Picard, all of them. But- you don't have to choose a fate. You don't have no one's no exactly. One's they're all they're all they could all be good, but yeah, no, yeah. I was. Uh, you said something I liked a lot, which is that it is a more, and I mean, I w- w- very much agree with this. It's a way more Marxist and classist analysis of track than we ever get because it's it all, is, oh, yeah, all the mob, all the people mopping up. It's baked into its premise. So even if it's not consciously, deliberately wanting to tell a revolutionary Marxist perspective, it almost can't help itself because the very premise sets up the question of like, who does the work and who calls the shots? And that is actually the question about Marxism, right? So we'll get into it. But I think that's the wonderful, such a pleasant surprise of Lower Decks is that it just ends up telling stories in a way that other Treks can't do it. And I think that's also why I love Deep Space Nine. You know, it's a little different. 
it's on a space station, you know, Lower Decks is a cartoon and it's a comedy, right? It's a little different. And yet, because it's a little different, it can tell some really interesting stories. So I've been watching that. And then I guess in a similar vein, I've always loved watching Bob's Burgers. That's always my go-to, just a non-Trek show to kind of really just enjoy and chuckle with. So just, you know, watching that uh, when it comes on. And that's it. I'm, I'm fairly I'm fairly straightforward in terms of my viewing preferences, uh, to be honest. We don't ask you to come up with esoteric stuff that nobody's listened to or heard of. That's not relatable. They don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I'll just say I haven't, I haven't watched anything this week. I went rafting. It was great. Go splash in the water, paddle a boat, get wet. Someone falls on you. You'll laugh. Yeah, that's it. The Okoe's nice if you're in the South. That's awesome. You, know? you didn't have to go get your, your shoulder patched up afterwards, did you? Like okay, Miles no, there is, still, there is still a Miles O'Brien grade risk of having your shoulder ripped completely off of your body, but it's <laughs> it's not that bad most places. He does a lot worse holodeckery than the Okoe. It's not that not that scary. It's Wait, a good is time. that like a new like Homeland Security threat level? <laughs> like, this is a Miles <laughs> O'Brien day. <laughs> oh, oh, dear God. That's a I don't go there day. That's like, okay, cool. I'll stay inside. It's a Miles O'Brien level of hurting yourself on the holodeck adventure. I don't, I don't do that. <laughs> I just recently watched, saw again, I should say, the episode of Deep Space Nine where Odo talks about going rafting in the holodeck with Miles and Kira's like, what? You go to, you go in the holodeck? What? <laughs> it was a really funny exchange. That's great. Uh, what you've been doing? What with, no, I, I mean, I'm at work, so it doesn't matter to me, but what, I, what, why don't you tell me about this stuff, Odo? Like, because you don't care. I make my hand into a big paddle. It's fun. <laughs> I think the problem there was that Odo wasn't communicating with his girlfriend clearly about whether or not he was also dating Kira's boyfriend. <laughs> it is the polycule yeah. station. Yeah. It really is. It's amazing how, especially Deep Space Nine, has been transformed by the fandom that people read such interesting and valid and genuine interpretations into it just because the characters are you know they're well written enough and they're acted well enough that they can be broadly interpreted as all sorts of stuff and it's great like that's that means Look, those two really... adult men have a friendship oh no <laughs> yeah like like look at them share their feelings and like touch and like hug oh with that with that context you know what deep space nine is really missing is denobulans Mm. so true it'd be perfect it, exactly right it, that's a perfect retcon of just like mm -hmm. you know a dr flock's character would thrive on deep space nine not just just Absolutely. live just really thrive i'd like to invite yeah. everyone to come to my kickstarter where we are funding the gay cut of deep space nine um we're gonna <laughs> just reskin the whole thing go back through edit out a lot of stuff but then really focus on some other scenes yep <laughs> give generously that's gonna be great so, Corey, aside from the episode where one writer grabbed a huge shoehorn and gave Odo a bunch of character <laughs> development, uh, you wouldn't watch anything else? No, yeah. I'm So, for uh, Will's sake and for new listeners, I've been working my way for the last several months through a chronological viewing of all Trek. Um, mm. of, of course, I've I've seen everything at this point. Actually, the only thing I haven't seen yet is Lower Decks, and that's only because Lower Decks only kind of came on my radar after I started doing this this rewatch, um, going in in chronological order of the timeline. And you're not there yet, so yeah. And I'm yeah. not there yet, so that's why I decided to wait. Um, I you know I just decided that I'll honor the timeline. I'm, I'm going in chronological order of the the timeline of the show, and so I'm at this point. I've just finished TNG. Deep Space Nine overlaps with the last couple of seasons like two and a half seasons of TNG and then pretty much right after that ends is when 
in, in season three of Deep Space Nine uh, is when it starts to overlap with Voyager. So I actually just started watching Voyager. And the way I'm doing that right now is I'm like, I'll, I'll watch like a couple episodes of Deep Space Nine and then I'll a couple episodes of Voyager and, you know, just kind of go back and forth. That's fantastic. Yeah, it has actually been a lot of fun as because I've watched each one of the series at least well, like a couple of them I've only watched all the way through like twice, but Deep Space Nine is also my favorite by like a lot. And so I've, I've probably watched that one at least seven or eight times all the way through. But uh, I've watched pretty much all the other series at least four times through. So having all of that context and then going back through and watching it in this order has been a really interesting experience. So so, so yeah. tell me, you, you started with Enterprise and then went to Discovery and then jumped it to TOS? Is that how you did so, it? Well, well, actually, you watch the first 30 minutes of the finale of Star Trek TNG, where we go back to the beginning of time. Then you watch the first 10 minutes of, <laughs> of uh, First Contact, and we get to Zep from Cochrane. No. You go back and do the Bell Riots episode, and all the Nazis. Okay. Uh, no, no, no. Star no, Trek Four happens no, right in the middle there. <laughs> no, it's it's that's way too confusing. Now, there's a great article, and actually, um, I'll make sure we get this linked in the shits, but there's a great article on Tech Radar about how to watch Star Trek in order, and you do you start with Enterprise, and then you watch the first two seasons of Discovery, yep. because, you know, in season three, they go forward. Then yep. you go to TOS, then the animated series, and then all the movies, or the, the original movies. And then, actually, it's funny, it says you watch the opening sequence only of Generations, and then you start Next Generation. Uh, so oh, that's a great right. machete order choice to yeah, like hey, here's Diane. What now? Never mind. Yeah, here's a show. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I, I did all that, and then um, and then I watched all of TNG, and then the last like season or two and a half seasons overlapping with the first couple seasons of Deep Space Nine, and then I I went and watched the rest of Generations, um, which I got some things to say about and that. And what a catastrophe that is! Oh well, at least they didn't have a whale this time. Generations is not that bad. No, it really isn't. Malcolm McDowell is fantastic, but three old men fighting a desert is not the fucking epic final finality to your action movie you thought it was. <laughs> well, I think like a lot of Star Trek, you know, Generations is not about the climax, but about, you know, the journey you took to get there. And what a journey it was. Yeah. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that's where I'm at. I'm uh, I'm I'm just starting Voyager again, and uh, and I'm in season three of of Deep Space Nine as well. So ah, that's fantastic. That that is oh, so season three of Deep Space Nine. So we're just kind of at Golducott's gone, or is he still on the station being a goofus? Well, you know, Golducott he, he makes regular reappearances. Um, yeah. or, or we just had the Attention Bajoran Workers episode, which is one of my favorites in Deep Space Nine. Oh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> is a Ducati like a discount luxury vehicle? Oh, it's a gullwing Ducati. Thank you. Which is uh. weird because it's a motorcycle. I understand. Amy, what are you looking at? Well, I am stuck in this lovely loop where I put on the first season of Winona Earp and then I wake up and season two is playing. So this rewatch is going to take a while. <laughs> That's not. That doesn't sound like a ringing recommendation to those of us that are here for an action show, but... Uh, well, I've just seen it so many times, the action just... It's there. I know how it ends. But um, the characters are really coming out to me this time, and I just get fascinated with that, but I'm watching it to fall asleep, you know? And the the theory that the younger sister in that show is trans is, is really coming out strong now that I'm watching the whole thing and with that in mind. Yeah, that's all I got. <laughs> nice. That's easy enough. All right, so... Then let's let's move along to our main course, which is, I mean, why did we call the show this again? 
Well, I mean, we've talked about, you know, just as, as a group of friends, you know, the reason why we started this show is because a lot of people that we meet that are big fans of Star Trek have talked about how Star Trek shifted their politics. And how as they became fans of the show and as they really immersed themselves into the, the, the world of, of Trek, that they found themselves moving further and further to the left. And so for that reason, like we, we often joke about how Star Trek is the West Wing for communists. It, and that's, that's, you know, intended to be kind of tongue in cheek, a little bit of an insult, but it is also true. And like, we, we have to meet people where they are and people don't always have the experience or skill set to um, just immediately indoctrinate themselves into, into Marxism. Myself, we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording. You know, I grew up in a very conservative household and I have worked my way through the spectrum from, uh, I would guess I would say like the furthest right that I ever was, was maybe like center right um, when I was very young, uh, like in high school. And I was in high school when when Next Generation was finishing up and when Deep Space Nine was coming on. But I, d- I didn't get into Trek back then. Over the time, I actually, I, I did it the reverse. I ended up moving my politics very far to the left just because I was like watching the world. And then I I went back and discovered Trek and I was like, oh, I, this is all stuff that I love and believe. And so for me, it's been a great way to just kind of like explore this political space as I've worked my way into what I, I now consider myself a socialist. But I'm still very much like learning about this and this uh, environment and this end of the political spectrum. So that's why we wanted to get Will on is because uh, this is this is your jam, Will. I love the fact that this is named gay space communism because that's the, you know, it really started out as internet meme or an internet idea in a way, you know, fully automated gay space communism, right, is in fact, in a lot of ways, what Star Trek is purported to be, although there is some pushback. And I think, but a lot of people make those connections and those connections, they're not pulled out of thin air. They're not tenuous. Actually, there's a deep foundation as to why that's actually a great way to explain the universe that we love so much, although it's not perfectly formed as, as a as a Marxist interpretation uh, initially, but it creates an environment and a setting in which a Marxist analysis is only natural. It is just begging for that type of explanation. And it starts off with the fact that the baseline at all Star Trek is that there is a United Federation of Planets and there's a United Earth, right? That there is a space agency on Earth on one world government. Right? There are no national borders that we know of, and that it's alluded to that Earth is a paradise. They've eliminated, you know, Deanna Choi talks about it, Kirk talks about it, Cisco talks about it, Picard talks about it, how they've eliminated poverty, hunger, war, at least on Earth, right? Those types of things, right? On that planet, they're, they're really able to live life to their fullest. And Earth is just one of many other planets in a federation of planets, a voluntary federation of planets that its primary mission is to explore. And that premise, just just that alone, actually demands a Marcus explanation because in, in reality, that's the only way you can explain how that actually comes into fruition, how it comes into possibility. And I think that's the starting point that I talk about when I say, you know, I'm not only a gigantic Star Trek dork, I love Star Trek, I love to cosplay, love to go to conventions, but I'm also a very committed revolutionary Marxist, a communist who believes in socialist revolution those aren't just utopian ideals aspirational that that's actually the next stage in human society and in fact we need to move to the next stage if we want to survive as a species as a planet and voting for a black president voting for more diverse oppressors or like you know a non-binary commander-in-chief who bombs people overseas but it's diverse right they're diverse in their in their oppression that's not going to get us anywhere right and i think that's how a lot of people are connecting with star trek and i think they're also 
responding to the times. We live in very unstable times because we live in a crisis of capitalism, right? What's the way out, right? We've elected Barack Obama twice. I thought we got rid of racism and boom, Black Lives Matter happened in Ferguson in 2014 and exploded last year with George Floyd. Like what happened, right? And then you have liberals who say, this is not the America I recognize anymore. What happened? You know, what's going on? And as a Marxist, we understand this is what happened. This is what happens when the system itself cannot find a resolution which begs the question, why are we where we're at? And more importantly, what do we do about it? And I think Star Trek is some people's kind of comfort food to say, can't we have a better future? Can't we have a better world? And as a Marxist, we'd say, absolutely, a better world is possible. And this is how you do it. This is how you fight for it. So, Will, I really like what you're getting at there, and I notice you started to use qualifiers in front of Marxism, which is the Marxist's favorite tool, of course. And uh, maybe we can get at Marxism itself a little bit by talking about those qualifiers. So, revolutionary Marxism implies that there's another sort. And what makes Marxism Marxism, I guess? I guess let's start there. Is it a view of history, or a view of society as it is, or is it a revolutionary ethos? Okay, well, first you got the guy with the cigar and the mustache, and that's Groucho. And the silent one with the horn that cuts your tie off <laughs> is Harpo. That represents sort of a jokerification, a more revolutionary form of that. Uh, Chico, of course, steps in and sort of is more of an immediary sort of DSA, well, let's negotiate and work out prices. Meanwhile, Zeppo in the back's holding the big stick. I'm sorry, you meant someone and something else. There's also Richard Marx who wrote that song in the 80s, right? Uh, see? No, like, so again, Marxism 101. There's a lot of them. We mean Carl. Uh, <laughs> the first qualifier for Marxism is, is which is what you mean, it's, it's Carl. Carl. Carl Marxism is what we're looking for. I'm sorry. We, are you, that is what you're an expert in. I'd like to believe I can speak a little bit too. If I'm, I'm always learning. I can always learn more, but uh, I, I can speak a little bit about it. Yeah. Well, there you go. So yeah, the, as as Amy was saying, quali- the sort of the qualifiers of of Marxism, right? Like you're yeah, revolutionary or why revolutionary versus other? I guess is the first step towards that. Sure, uh, I think that's a very fair question. Suffice to say, I think uh, obviously the hosts here, you guys are leftists, and I'm sure that the audience here are are those are on the left that consider themselves kind of of that milieu, if you will. Um, so what? Yeah, what is it? Right, everyone seems to be calling themselves Marxists, right? Like, what is the definition of it? You know, what's a democratic socialist? What's a communist? What's an anarcho-communist? Right, like all those types of things. Right? And I think, obviously, that is a far bigger topic on so many things. But I think, uh, suffice to say, is Marxism is just a term to call dialectical materialism. And what is dialectical materialism or, or historical materialism? It's the idea that you can analyze social conditions, social events, in the same way that you can observe natural events or natural science in a scientific way. And it doesn't mean that you use, you know, formulas, you don't use, you know, uh, it's not like chemistry per se. It's not vulgar in that way where it's mechanical one-to-one. But when we say it's a science, we mean it's a method in the sense that are there things that you could observe and then generalize into a theory? And that's what theory is. And you hear a lot in leftist circles, you got to read theory. But then some people say, well, theory is inaccessible. It's off-putting. No one really reads these dusty old books anyway, right? Why do we read theory? And for me, I can safely say that I'm in the camp where you need to read theory because theory is just a roadmap. It's a roadmap of what has happened in the past and where to go in the future, right? Because theory is just a set of generalized experiences, experiences that has happened before. And when we say Marxism, which is really just dialectical materialism, it's basically saying, are there events that happen in human society and in human history that we can learn from and generalize from, specifically the working class struggle? right? The struggle of the workers and the productive forces in society, right? That's where there's that famous line in the Communist Manifesto, you know, the the history of of society up to this point is a history of class struggle, because it goes back to the idea of 
how does human society develop? Go back to, to you know basic nuts and bolts is, is how did society develop? It developed on the idea of a surplus, right? Because for a long period of time, you know, there was a sort of quote unquote primitive communism. I would say early communism, right? Where everyone had to kind of pitch in in order to make sure that there was enough to eat for your family, for your village, for your community. Everyone needed to work and have their assigned tasks in order to, to survive day to day, week to week, what have you. Up until there is a, a, a development of the productive forces where you literally didn't have to anymore live hand to mouth, literally, literally you know, determine on, on a more immediate basis where you're going to be fed, where you're going to be housed, those types of things. The development of that surplus is the germ or it's the seed of which society develops around it. Because when you have that surplus, you mean that there can be a, a layer of people that don't have to work in that same way to survive. And therefore, you have the division of labor. You begin to have the stratification of labor. And with that, labor relations and then property relations, right? And then that's how over time you develop these relationships that can command people, that can kind of uh, force people to do certain things, right? And you have the development of the armed bodies of men that Lenin sends in revolution to protect that surplus, to protect property, right? Because, uh, you know, when there is a surplus, you need to see who gets what, right? And who gets to wait in line, who gets to be in front of the line, right? And you need someone to say, you know, someone to arbitrate that that's what the marxist definition of the state is right but you analyze where does that come from so you have to kind of go back to the studs of it the, the, the nuts and bolts to analyze it so marxism is just a way to analyze human relationships human societal relationships in the same way that we can observe like a, you know natural history or natural science the development of those types of things and there are things that we can generalize over time and then we can kind of predict how certain things happen within society and then how struggles reforms changes happen and yet that happens actually through organization through direct struggle it's how we went from feudalism you know game of thrones type stuff how do you go from there to capitalism and then from now how do we go from capitalism to the next stage which is what socialism is. socialism is the stage in between capitalism and communism right so they're all part of the human story part of human development part of human history so it's just a shorthand way of saying how do you analyze those events and marx was the first to really kind of put it down into words to say you can analyze these events in the same way that you can observe nature in the real world Something that you said there, like, really, especially right there at the end, just resonated with me so hard, because just thinking about my own political journey, and how I ended up where where I currently am, there was actually a book that I of, of all random things, I picked it up in an airport, and it just looked interesting, a book called Critical Mass. And it was, I think, first published in 2005, 2006. And it's written by Philip Ball, who's actually a chemist. And he writes this book about how we can observe, study, and understand both human behavior individually, but more more broadly, social development, like our, our development as a society, as, as nations, as a global community, to understand that the same way that we understand the way natural science interacts in that context. I just, that's so interesting because thinking about it, that probably was kind of the beginning of how I started to shift my thinking, is to thinking about how we interact with one another and how our our society develops through the lens of natural science. Yeah, totally. So basically, would you agree if I if I just kind of collapsed that into saying Marx and Marxism attempts to be like a scientific method for history? Now, history being subjective, there's more than one method for that, but it's a scientific method for history. Yes, I would say that's, a, that's an accurate kind of boiling down. 
Yeah, because when you get there, like, I think that Marxism gets complicated, not because that idea is hard, but because there are so many conclusions that once you start looking at history, you immediately kind of jump to. And so whenever someone kind of starts with a description of Marxism, they immediately jump to a description of the entire world, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, because yeah. it does describe everything and it changes your perspective on so much. Yeah. And I know I didn't fully answer your question because I didn't want to go on even longer than that. But the difference between revolutionary Marxism and, and you'd say, you know, does it imply different types of other types of, of Marxism, what have and you? What and, are non-revolutionary Marxists even doing? <laughs> well, the irony about that Building is, the um, welfare state. Good Christ. Have you not seen them working? It's true, right? So the irony about that is many non-revolutionary Marxists would not like the label non-revolutionary Marxists. They wouldn't like to call themselves that either. But I think historically, it's part of how the workers' movement uh, has evolved. The, the question about reform and revolution are not new questions, right? Rosa Luxemburg wrote a whole book about reform versus revolution. It's actually a great book. Actually, in the quest to fight for reforms, you actually build a revolutionary tendency within the working class movement. They realize the necessity for a social revolution. And revolution boiled down is really just a change in social classes, a change in property relations. It requires a breaking of the previous ties. That's what a revolutionary change means, right? So when you break it down in those types of terms, we have had many revolutions in our history, right? One, you look at the United States, the American Revolution was a bourgeois revolution, yes, but it broke with the aristocracy of that time. There was a second American Revolution. It was the Civil War, right? When they, the emancipation of the slaves, the liberation of the slaves was a tremendous revolutionary change. It was literally one of the largest expropriations of private property in history. Right? All of a sudden, all this property was now gone, right? It was taken from them by force. And Marx at the time was supportive of the Civil War in that aspect, right? He understood the progressive effect that the liberation of chattel slavery would have, right? We've gone through these types of periods before. So I think what a lot of people, you know, they kind of shy away like revolution, that seems so far-fetched, like you're crazy, man. But if you take that longer view and you look at it historically, that's how society has always developed. It's gone through these periods of, of revolutions. A social revolution is really just the highest form of revolution. It's the one where the working class themselves are able to take power decisively, right? And we understand the true nature of the state. And we understand what needs to be done in terms of enabling that Star Trek future, right? And it's not necessarily a question about, uh, well, it's certainly not a question of uh, building a kinder, gentler capitalism, uh, you know, welfare state, if you will. It goes more than that. So would you say that the bourgeois revolution is necessary to the workers' revolution? Yes, but not at this particular time. That's why I think specifically, I'm also a Trotskyist as well. I'm a Leninist, I'm a Trotskyist in the sense that we understand the necessity of the social revolution to achieve permanent tasks, meaning that the bourgeois revolutions did play a particular role when capitalism was still in its infancy or in its earlier stages. That's why the French Revolution, the English Revolution, and arguably the American Revolution were the last bourgeois revolutions that could happen under capitalism, where the capitalists could still play a progressive role in the sense that they were basically vanquishing the last feudal relationships, the last aristocratic relationships. Like I said, some real Game of Thrones stuff, right? Like eliminating lords, you know, serfdoms, peasants, that kind of stuff, right? And establishing bourgeois ideas of, you know, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, you know, fraternity, the French Revolution, or French revolutionary types of terms, right? The revolution of politics. Right. And I think the idea of the bourgeois revolution playing that type of role is only predicated on the fact that it could develop the productive forces, right? So capitalism developed productive forces on a higher level than feudalism, right? When you were literally just chained to that piece of land. 
Now under capitalism, you can sell your labor freely, right? That is an advancement compared to feudalism, but then also things become their opposite. Now, instead of actual slavery, we have wage slavery, right? So things can become their opposite, right? So that's what we say now is that capitalism has actually developed the productive forces the furthest it can get, right? We actually have amazing technological ability. This is where Star Trek comes in too, right? You know, look at our phones. Our phones are something that even Star Trek couldn't imagine, right? It's an amazing supercomputer in our pockets, right? It's an, and it's completely thin. It's amazing, right? You see sometimes in Deep Space Nine, you know, Jake Sisko has like 20 pads lined up because he's like, you know, I, I got so I need your signature on all of these, sir. It's all like, that pads, is 12 right? iPads. Just fucking exactly, give him a thumbprint, right? dude. Like, it's hilarious. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those little quirks that makes Star Trek so great. But in reality, they couldn't even imagine like, it can all fit in one iPad, right? And yet, despite the fact that we have this amazing technology literally in our fingertips, we literally have people homeless, dying of exposure, thirst, hunger, in a country that's supposedly the richest in the world, right? Where we actually pour bleach on food because we can't give it away to people, right? If you want to radicalize people, take them to the back alley of a grocery store or a deli or restaurant and see how much food is thrown every single day and tell me that that doesn't radicalize you, right? We actually yeah. have the productive forces, right? We have the technique and the ability to literally feed everyone on this planet, make sure they have enough to eat, don't die of thirst, have a roof over their heads, have basic medical care and dental care. And medical Hi, care. Will. I'm getting reports from our advertising team who are really hard at work <laughs> that we have got to stop talking about any of this because that is literally everything Ameri all our every company does now is financialize itself into an IPO and then become nothing. So... Yeah, our, our cryptocurrency gay space coin is tanking right now. We need to move on. <laughs> wow. So yeah, stop encouraging people to do real work and make something useful. Because no, that, I mean, but like you're absolutely right. Like that is ultimately the the large end of the growth in all of our economy. Since ultimately, since the sort of let's call it the moon landing is a good tag for when we've reached that sort of point of physical material abundance that we're like, no, we can clearly manipulate this environment. We could do whatever we want. We just don't and yeah at this point everything's just financials ever since then and none of this value accrues where regular people are or where yeah which is again the working class the the thing you got it i mean you nailed it right people know that deep down deep down in their bones if you ask them honestly like isn't life more than just paying the bills and dying they'll say yes so then why are we still here right that's the central contradiction of what's happening and also that's what gives me hope it's because it's how you resolve that contradiction. It's actually how you radicalize people. When people literally can't square in their head what they know to be true and what they see in everyday life and their inability to reconcile that, that's what makes them open to conversations like this. Oh, man. Like, well, I got to say, this conversation is, I won't, I'm not going to lie. I was a little bit intimidated coming into this conversation because I definitely feel like of everyone on the panel right now, I'm the least informed of these concepts because I'm still discovering them. But everything that you're saying is actually bringing up things that I have encountered along my journey that helped me get here. And I guess I'm just going to keep talking about books that I've read. I also, I would say a critical point in my radicalization, you were talking about grocery stores, throwing away food. I read a book called stuffed and starved over 10 years ago now and it's all about food production and like how the global food supply operates and exactly what you're saying about how we produce more than enough food it's not the fact that we don't have enough food to feed the world it's that it's the way that we financialize and distribute the food that is the problem and why we have so much waste and that for me like really coming to understand that was definitely a starting point of my radicalization so boy you just yeah
I think that's it's why I do what I do. And I think I think a lot of people resonate with that because it's so many of us can come up with not just one, not two, they come up with 10 reasons why they know deep down, like this is so incredibly unfair, unequal, and it shouldn't be like that, right? People often say like, oh, well, life isn't fair, right? Life's tough, right? You know, that's, you know, you got dog eat dog, says who, right? Literally says who, right? You have to kind of really break it down. says like, oh, life isn't fair, you know, like says who, right? So who gets to live? Who gets to die? Who gets to decide all these types of things, right? It's all just assumed, like that's just the way it is, right? And I think that's a lot of the unlearning process and i think it's i'm I really appreciate you, you bringing that up because i think it's funny because online i get a lot of crap from people say oh he's not really a communist he just posts a lot in, in star trek cosplay he doesn't really believe this he's all about himself he doesn't know what he's talking about and the irony is that like i actually do know what i'm talking about and many others know what they're talking about too because you know we actually do uh like you you we want to learn more about what's going on we actually want to figure out a way like life's got to be better than this Right. Life can be so much more than this, right? And um, that's how you really connect people is that they know deep down this there is more to life than paying bills and dying. So why are we still just paying bills and dying, right? So Well, I, I like what you're saying there. And so one thing I, I noticed and and Ren, this might be a great uh, time for the bong rip sound effect, but like we're <laughs> we're achieving this like sort of luxury not communism through such distributed devices. Like everyone has a personal supercomputer. Amy Yes. That's always been called luxury. That's that's just <laughs> what luxury has always been. Oh thank you, Paul. <laughs> Keep going. No, no, but you're right. Like the distribution of some of it, right? What did William yeah. Gibson say? The future is here, but it is not yet spread out. Well, and we all have our own, right? Like in Star Trek, there's always this assumption that I'm going to talk to the central computer and use my little bit of resources that I need from this massive amount of resources instead of we all have to have our own massive amount of resources, computing power in our pocket, you know, just so we can do what the Star Trek computer does for hundreds of crew people all the time, you know? Well, that's not fair. That's not fair to the internet as the device, right? Like the communicator you have and rendering engine that's in your pocket is not as good as the holodeck that will pull up everything from Star Trek central databases. But like the internet is the tool that we've made that's cool. Like the screens all point into it and that's great. But what's actually like Wikipedia is what you want. But we have a terminal in our pocket, you know, that's mine and you can't have it. And I have insurance on it instead of a communal terminal I could use at any time. It's kind of what I'm thinking. To that point, actually, I, I do think we were talking earlier about how um, there's not like a, a Star Trek conceptualization of the modern smartphone. But I actually think there is. If you notice that the Ferengi tend to have a singular pad that does everything. Quark only ever carries around one pad. He's not like carrying around 30 different terminals. He's got his, his own pad. So I think theirs is probably the closest analogy to what we have. And it's got a little credit card processor in there. You just bio scan your thumb and like, oh, I paid him, I guess. Or it's overdrafted by account or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So Ferengi definitely have social media as opposed to pretty much everyone else in Star Trek. Oh, God. Could you imagine Ferengi Facebook? Um, yeah, I can. It's all ads. It's all lobes. Every, well, I mean, everyone's selling anything anyway. That's the only reason to tell anybody anything. So yeah. it's ads for lobes and lobes for ads. Those multi-level marketing schemes must be something else. And the, the comment section is wild. It's just both sides. It goes way far in either direction. No one's like, it's fine. Product's okay. <laughs> yeah. Women are only allowed to post pictures of themselves without any clothes on. Yeah. Oh, that's bold of you to give women cameras on Ferenginar. 
In fact, the comment section for ads is only ads yeah. for other products. <laughs> that's canon. That's, true. that's canon where Quark has he puts in that replicator pattern where he puts go to Quark's, you're gonna have a lot of fun, don't walk, run, and then Worf gets mad because his prune juice is replicated in the mug that's basically an advertisement for Quark. So like yet again they kind of predicted like he will do anything to like monetize all sorts of stuff. Oh, and they all know they all sing the one the scene where Rom ends up getting spoiler alert for a 30-year-old TV show, gets handed the Nagus, the title of Nagus. They all there's a couple of scenes that where they all just sing the song of a Ferengi soda, which is just wonderful. Like, oh, you guys all <laughs> definitely know this. Well, I mean, that's what that's where our original, like a lot of the sheet music humans sing. It was jingles. Okay, script pitch. When we do our reboot of Deep Space Nine, we've got to do it as a sitcom. And then the theme song can be come to Quarks, Quarks is fun, come to Quarks, don't walk run it would work perfectly deep space nine is the perfect sitcom environment where everyone can just vibe so will what is the least communist thing about star trek because that's kind of what we dig into like let's dig into this wild west thing uh sorry not the wild west west wing element of that yeah, sure it's funny you use that um that terminology west wing for communists that's what star trek is and i think it's, it's, it's very apropos in the sense that it's very contradictory right so west wing is is basically just very sorkin-esque hillary clinton-esque liberalism warmed over liberalism that really just ages terribly it just gets worse and worse as time goes by but a lot of people still cling on to those illusions of we just need competent cling on um, sorry <laughs> yeah exactly uh you know we just need competent smart leaders and we'll find like we'll find like a smart bipartisan technocratic solution to all of our problems right it was very a very 90s solution right it was the end of history it was francis fukuyama the cold war is over we figured it out it's only going up from here and what happens the dot-com bubble burst 9-11 happened and yet we have fast forward 20 years we're here now right so the least communist aspects of, of star trek is ironically enough you know the parts where star trek is contradictory in the fact that it does lean into a lot of its liberal aspects too right so obviously you know online i'm call myself the Star Trek communist, although I don't think of myself as the singular one. There are many others, right? I think it's just a kind of a moniker online. But the reason why no, I, we've established uh, it's a collective. Your distinctiveness will be incorporated in it would be my Of course, right. right. That, that's a conservative <laughs> argument. Oh, oh, you know, communism is just a board, right? It's a board cube, right? Yeah. I, yeah, I advocate for a Borg lifestyle. It's a collective. Yeah. Yeah, so I think in a lot of ways, there is a lot of liberalism that does go into Star Trek because a lot of the writers come from Hollywood. There are a lot of more liberal writers, right? And sometimes the Marxism only comes out inadvertently, right? They present a solution where there's only a Marxist answer to it, right? So to answer your question, what is the least communist? I would say just the idea of the bureaucracy of Starfleet, the fact that the Federation itself, it's federated, yes, but does seem to have like a, a, a state apparatus around it, right? So there are critiques, right? Like this, you know, people often say, is the Federation really utopia when there's Section 31? There are bad morals where like every other admiral seems to be bad. The officers often like disobey orders, right? There's a Sardis to the Federation, there are some colonialist, imperialist, you know, undertones to what the Federation does, right? So is it truly a communist future? Is it a utopia? And I would say it's very much a contradiction. But actually, ironically enough, using dialectical materialism, you can sort out those contradictions and make sense of it, and then more importantly, go forward. So the idea of the least communist aspect of Star Trek is in fact the bureaucracy of Starfleet, right? So this is actually why, for those that haven't watched Lower Decks, that's why I think in a lot of ways it really appeals to it because it really poses the question who does all the work in Starfleet who gets all the credit and that's why those characters just by their their setting and their premise ask some really interesting questions right because that actually is the least communist aspect 
of Star Trek, right? The, the, the idea of communism is a truly stateless and classless society, right? Where the state withers away in Lenin's term, right? One could say that Earth in the future, that one world government, United Earth is communist on a planetary scale only, which is wild to say only on a planetary scale because that's what we're fighting for right now. It's a tremendous advancement, right? But on a perhaps galactic scale, not as much, right? So it kind of begs the question of, you know, you need a permanent social revolution to actually resolve all these contradictions across the galaxy, right? Ooh, and, and there you're really getting a sort of a, a hidden neoliberal assumption in Star Trek, which is that we can't just stop suffering. We have to stop the apparent suffering of everyone we can see by exporting all of it somewhere else. Correct. Yeah, you're talking about like neoliberal themes or liberal themes, I should say, in Star Trek. Because of the the watch order that I'm going through right now, I actually just encountered two instances of this in Deep Space Nine and Voyager. And I, I hate that this dawned on me because it's literally like one of my probably top five episodes of all Trek, but the uh, past tense parts one and two of Deep Space Nine where they're talking about the Bell Riots. There's this whole speech that Cisco gives as Gabriel Bell talking about how people People need to be able to be self-sufficient and that they don't want to be reliant on government handouts, which, of course, the way the sanctuary districts operate in past tense is abhorrent. It's not the thing that we want. But they're essentially putting forth that theory that um, government assistance is inherently destructive and that people are better off when they are, quote unquote, self-sufficient. And then Voyager does the same thing, literally in the pilot episodes where they meet the caretaker for the Ocampa. And Janeway says exactly that, like, hey, have you ever considered maybe just, you know, fucking off and letting the uh, letting the Ocampa learn how to take care of themselves, you know, I guess because Darwinism or something. But it was really jarring to kind of see both of those themes emerge from those two episodes that I, I watched quite recently. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why sometimes you will get mad at me online. They're like, well, there's so many examples in Star Trek that are contradictory that I can disprove that it's communist and they'll try to like disprove, you know, this assertion, right? And I think that's inherent issue here is that how do you make sense of these contradictions? We're not denying that Star Trek is at the end of the day still owned by CBS and Paramount. They need to create stuff to sell, you know, they have an IP. I have no illusions that Paramount are Marxists in any way or even the writers are inherently Marxists anyway. But the fact that they're still playing in this universe that has has some defined parameters. These defined parameters achieving a one world government where they eliminate poverty and hunger and war and disease, at least on Earth and, and many other planets, right? And they, especially in early TNG, when they talk about we've, we've outgrown our infancy, right? And then in first contact, when they talk about the pursuit of wealth is no longer the driving force in our lives, right? All those types of statements and facts of the universe, that can't happen under liberalism. It's not possible, right? It, you know, Jeff Bezos and, and Elon Musk will not give us the United Federation of Planets right? They'll sell us the air we breathe, right? You don't see that on a starship, right? They just give you medical care, right? Dr. Crusher's not charging you a health insurance premium or a copay when she gives you a hypo spray. They're not charging rent, right? They don't get bi-weekly paychecks, right? It's all those types of things. And I think that is something that a lot of people don't understand is that um, regardless of the intent sometimes of what the writers want, the fact that the universe exists as it is right now only begs the question of a revolutionary break from capitalism, a break from private 
property and private ownership of the means of production, right? So it doesn't really matter that in the 55 plus years of Star Trek that there are instances where it can be conservative or liberal, what have you. Like, yeah, you're going to get that because it's been written by a zillion different types of writers and showrunners and what have you, right? But overall, the overall themes is what you can use to have conversations with people. That's the ticket, really. And I think that's the, the fun part about this. And I actually think that's what makes Trek so accessible to people is that because it creates an environment where these conversations can be had. And and to me, Deep Space Nine is far and away my favorite Trek. And believe it or not, my second favorite is actually Voyager. And I get a lot of shit for that because Voyager definitely has a lot of problems. But to me, those two series do the best job of exploring the space where the reality that the characters are dealing with on a day-to-day basis bumps up against their operating philosophy. And it's where those points of conflict occur that the most interesting trek happens, like in the Pale Moonlight, where, you know, obviously, like, Cisco just straight up tricks the Romulans into getting into the Dominion Wars. Definitely some very 9-11, Deep Space Nine shit. But it's those contradictions, I think, that make it possible for us to have these conversations with one another and with ourselves to think about how it applies to our own reality. Because we live with these contradictions every single day. We live in a world where people are hungry and yet there is food to feed them and we're not getting it to them. And we were talking a few minutes ago, I think, Amy, you made this point about how in Star Trek, they kind of export the suffering to people that they can't see. And that goes to some conversations we've had in, in the past on this show about how there's still like a shocking amount of forced labor in the Trek universe. And, you know, there's a lot of things that are, are present in our current world that are still present in Star Trek universe that it's it's because it is itself, that environment is, is itself in a state of evolution still. Hey, hey, Will, can you say the part about liberalism being essentially anti-utopian and we have to abolish property and do that through persuading people through personal connections? That was like porn. <laughs> Well, I, I can I can definitely go back to that for sure. So the essence where Star Trek does have like a revolutionary interpretation is when liberalism presents this type of world as a utopia. But there's a conceit that happens there where they say it's it's merely aspirational or it's a question of we just need to be, become better people and we just need to talk it through, which on one level, it's not a bad inclination. It's not a bad instinct. I love those conference room scenes where Picard, Janeway, Voyager, Archer, Kirk, what have you, right? They're talking about these issues, right? That's what Star Trek is so great. The, they love that talking, the talkiness of it. It's fantastic, right? And learning through diplomacy and, and exploration, those are good things in the abstract but when you apply it and that's where it becomes it can become a liberal and, and reactionary role is just like the only way to get to that better world that star trek world is if we you know just are we talk about it in a conference room we walk in each other's shoes we just become better people we just got to work on ourselves you know change starts with one person right that's what liberalism is right and it doesn't question power right like you can't negotiate these types of fundamental questions which is why deep space nine is sneakily revolutionary in the sense that kieran reese and the bourgeois resistance realize that you cannot negotiate with cardassian occupiers or you can't sit down in a conference room with gold and say yeah, okay can you suppress us a little bit right can 
advantageous, only, you know, a kinder, gentler imperialism and occupation, right? No, you, you oppose them by any means necessary, right? And it brings questions about Che Guevara, Malcolm X, right? Revolutionary leaders, right? All the colonial struggles that happen throughout society, right? And the inherent justness of their cause, right? To liberate themselves, right? The liberalism just says, well, you can only work on ourselves, right? You know, we can't change certain things. Or more importantly, you can go too far, right? You see a lot of, and actually it's, it's across the stream, you've seen a lot of Marvel movies, right? Well, the villain oftentimes has a great point about like, hey, we should end, you know, ecological disaster. We could, we should end, you know, over-commercialization. We should end all this type of stuff. And yet somehow they'll still be the villain somehow, right? Because at the end of the day, those superhero movies have to reset the status quo. And you can go too far, right? It's somewhere in the middle, right? Where that's the place to be, right? So in the end of Black Panther, what's the solution to, you know, Black oppression? They built like a charter school in Oakland using Wakandan technology. That's the big resolution, right? As opposed to why aren't we fighting for the liberation of all humanity, including oppressed Black people worldwide, right? No, like, let's just build a charter school in Oakland from a king, right? We still have kings, uh, but they're futuristic, right? That's the radicalism of Marvel, right? That's that's the best you can do. And the same thing goes with Star Trek, right? They just say, like, you know, we can't go too far. And uh, we just got to talk it through. It doesn't pose a question of who holds all the cards in society, who creates all the wealth in society. And a lot of people are starting to see that contradiction where even though people have more information, they're not necessarily, things aren't necessarily changing. It's because they can't actually talk through these issues, right? It's a question of power. And that's the rising class consciousness. That's how you can talk to these people. That actually gives me hope that things, people are starting to realize this more and more. It turns out now I'm thinking that the least communist thing about Star Trek may be the prime directive. That's actually fantastic. Sorry, you can't join the cool kids club unless... But yeah. we won't give you a hand with that. Sorry. We'd hate to interfere with your oppressive, destructive situation there. Exactly. Especially because, like, if, if humans hadn't messed with their own history and just, like, come across the Vulcans, like, they would have never had the change in consciousness that led to the Federation. You know, like, seeing aliens is what led to their change of consciousness. So, like, why don't you show people more aliens, dude? Right. Why, why is warp speed this arbitrary barrier to say they have to achieve warp speed in order to get contact with, with human civilization, right? It's, and I think that's a very good, there's a perfect Marxist deconstruction and analysis of the prime directive. And I think you hit the nail on the head. It's actually very reactionary. It actually uh, alludes to a lot of the stagism that happened to the Stalinized common term after World War II, right? Stalin actually abolished or got rid of Communist International as a crumb to the capitalist allies to say, we are no longer going to push for socialist revolution in your country. We're just going to work on building socialism in one country, work on ourselves. And react in reality, it was a reactionary move. It was basically to fortify and, and reassure the United States, the UK, France, like, you know what, we, we don't have to worry about Bolsheviks, you know, coming here anymore more right you know we can make a deal with stalin we can make a deal with the bureaucracy right and that shows you how things can become their opposite which is a, a fundamental piece of marxism things can become their opposite both good and bad so right now we're seeing a good thing happening consciousness is changing right people are talking about abolishing the police people are talking about abolishing ice people are talking about capitalism right people are actually talking about it and giving it a word people are no longer scared about the s word socialism even communism right and it shows you that things can change things are not static it's almost like how water, liquid water, turns into water vapor when things are heated up. And that's a great uh, analogy to explain consciousness. When things are starting to heat up, things can actually become physically different, where water becomes vapor, right? And we're actually in this, I would say, in an intermediary stage right now. We're in that stage where it's not quite water, but it's not quite vapor yet. And, and that's where consciousness is happening. So you, you see all these social explosions happening everywhere.
everywhere. You saw the, the hundreds of thousands of people going out for, for Palestine uh, recently. There's been a, a sea change in, in reactions toward the Israeli apartheid state in recent years. Right? There's more open criticisms of it. People can kind of see those connections. Right, Last year with George Floyd, 26 million people in the U.S. alone were taking to the streets to the fact that they forced Trump to flee to his bunker. They were He was scared in the summer. Right, He could see the protesters. Right, That's what gives me revolutionary optimism because that's what they're really afraid of. They're afraid of people taking to the streets in that amount of numbers right because they can't control them there are too many of us we outnumber them the only difference is that we are out organized we're not we don't we're not conscious yet of our own power but imagine those numbers that type of energy focused where the working class has its most power the workplaces the means of production that's what really strikes fear into them you want to really stop ICE deportations, you want to stop police from killing black people, you want to stop Palestinian oppression, you shut it down, right? You, you have ports shut down, your workplaces shut down in solidarity, right? A general strike that takes on a political character. That's what they're, they're really afraid of. But you have to build an organization in advance that knows what it's doing, has analyzed history before to realize that's how you make use of this moment. And that's what we're trying to do right now is talk to people about these types of things, talk to them that you can actually fight for socialism. You can actually fight for these types of things. In fact, that's the only thing we can do and must do because that's the only thing we actually get anything. Right. That's how you got the two day weekend or the eight hour workday. Like those didn't come out of nowhere. Like, why did we get those things? Because there was a genuine threat that they were going to lose everything. Right. So they're, they're like, fine, we'll give you an eight hour workday. We'll give you two days. In reality, they should give us more. In fact, we should work even less and get paid more. And in fact, we should be our own bosses. We don't need the ruling class. We call our shots. The workers call the shots. Right. That's what they're really afraid of is people understanding that they have all the power in the world if they're organized as a class, as workers, as a proletariat on an international basis. And they're doing everything they can to stop that. That's why racism is so effective because they just say, you know what? Black people deserve less. Mexicans deserve less. Palestinians deserve less. They're different than you, right? And that's our answer to those types of things. We want maximum class solidarity, maximum class unity. The poor white person has more in common with a poor person overseas in China, in Pakistan, in Nigeria than they have with their white bourgeois over here. But the white bourgeois will tell you you have more in common with them because of the skin color. That is the material basis for racism, which is why Malcolm X said you can't have capitalism without racism, right? So that's how you fight all these types of things. If you want to get to the brass tack, that's how you get to the stars. Oh, it's by fucking over your boss. Yeah. Because we're the bosses. We're the bosses. We don't need you. <laughs> that was just beautiful. I need a cigarette. That was. I mean, okay, that was, <laughs> that was amazing. Um, but solidarity now, you're absolutely right. Oh, no. Everything's been laid threadbare. All the fluff has been taken off the machines and none of them work. We can't all go vote. We can't all go get vaccines. We can't all go to the doctor. We technically all can't get arrested and get due process. We can't all get evicted if we just all go together. None of those things are ready to handle full capacity anything. And you just targeted effect. Make a plan, team. Uh, well, I think that's as good as place as any. I think that in the true lesson of Star Trek is with a good crew and by believing in yourself, also a bunch of lasers and stuff, you can do almost anything will thank you ever so much for coming on and being our star trek communist teacher because we're pretty smart but they, that that was yeah I'll, mm -hmm. that was amazing I, uh what would you like people to know about you and the internet and whatever or you know yeah this is your moment to plug in well, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. You guys are far too kind. And, and um, I'm blushing because you guys are, are getting far too kind because I didn't learn any of this by myself either. The best way to learn this stuff is actually through an organization. So here comes my plug. Right? I'm actually part of an organization called Socialist Revolution here in the United States, part of a larger organization worldwide called the International Marxist Tendency. So you can go to Marxist.com 
That's our international website. Or go to social. Good get to get the dot com, by the way. That's yeah. Top level uh, domain. It was victory over foresight. <laughs> yeah. Marxist.com is our international website. Socialrevolution.org is our US website. Because that's the best way to learn about these ideas is to talk about it with others. And that's what we're trying to do, trying to build the working class that's aware of its own power in every single city, in every single state, in every single country. And in fact, our largest section of our organization is in Pakistan, right? That shows you we're not messing around when we say workers the world unite. You're not with your chains we do mean it it's a global struggle and we share far more in common than we don't and i think that's the best way to get organized you want to fight for that star trek future you can do it right now in fact we need to do it right now so you go to marxist.com or socialrevolution.org is how you get in touch with me and, and many others and you can also find me on twitter too at boomer niner uh the star trek communist so i also post about you know star trek too and 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 and, and communism and, and everything in between so i'm happy to to be here and, and always talk about these issues so i'm very thankful Oh, we, it has been a joy to have you. Yeah, it's been our pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks a bunch. Listeners, you know us. I'm Paul Byron. I'm Corey Archibald. I'm Amy Hassel. That one's Will. You, I'm pointing because y'all can't see. Never mind. Leave me alone. Don't look at me anymore. You're not looking. All right. We're Gay Space Communism. You can catch us at the Not Safe Media Empire uh, and go to Marxist.com because it's an awesome, like, that's such a good, good, good job. <laughs> Patreon.com slash not safe. You know, give us money. Thanks, guys. That was a lot of fun. Thank you very much, Will. Thanks, everyone.